live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. With all due respect, I reject your theory completely. But you know what? There needs to be some backlash to this. This would be disastrous. There really has to be a better way. And I think the biggest question here is, what the hell is going on? The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 414-799-1620. Move for president. Get in the race. Will he run? And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. To the thousands of you, the ten thousands of you, maybe the hundreds of thousands of you worldwide who have been shafted this morning, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But that is exactly what has happened. No, you did not get shafted by the government. This isn't something you can blame on President Trump. No, you didn't get shafted by Nancy Pelosi or the Democrats in the House of Representatives. No, you got shafted, of all groups, by the PGA of America. All right, for those of you who have not been following this developing story, it is difficult to imagine how you could have turned this event into more of a screwed-up mess than it was. Thank you, PGA of America. All right, here, here is the deal. Next September, they are playing the Ryder Cup at Whistling Straits just outside of, of Kohler. The Ryder Cup is a big deal. Um, it is a situation where the best golfers in the United States, it's only held every two years, best golfers in the United States play the best golfers in Europe. This, um, The captain of this year's 2020 Ryder Cup team for the U.S. is Steve Stricker from Madison. All right, so for, for golf fans, attending the Ryder Cup is a really, really big deal. And for a lot of people in Wisconsin, this is probably is a reality. It's probably going to be the only time in many people's lifetime that the Ryder Cup is going to be in Wisconsin. So people have been making plans to do this. They have about 50,000 tickets that they issue for every one of the days. The competition, and it's the next September, the competition is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then there's practice rounds Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. All right. Today was the day that individual tickets to the Ryder Cup went on sale. Now, here is the process that the PGA of America set up. Last April, you had an opportunity to start registering online. So starting, like, I think it was April 16th and then running through September 13th, you had the opportunity to go online put in all your information, and register for what they describe as a chance to buy tickets. So lots and lots of people did that. Well, what happened um, about a week or so ago, people got emails. The emails say, congratulations, you're in. That's what they say, congratulations, you're in. And they give the individuals who got this, you, you get a special login number. So people who got this automatically, I think, thought, hey, I'm, I've got a chance to get tickets. Well, no, that's not exactly how it works. What happens is that if you get this special login number today at 9 a.m., you were allowed to go on to the Ryder Cup website, 9 a.m., and put in your registration number, at which point in time you then sit and wait until 10 a.m. 
And then at 10 a.m., you are assigned a spot in line for an opportunity to buy the tickets. Well, as it turns out, that first email, that congratulations and you're in, it appears that everybody who registered over those three or four months, everybody got a congratulations you're in email. There was no screening at all. So the number of people who were eligible to buy greatly exceeded the number of tickets that they actually had. Then what happened to a lot of people, including at least two people that I know, apparently the website had major league glitches. So when, when you got in, you log in at 9 o'clock. All right, then you wait patiently till 10 o'clock, and then you are randomly assigned things. There were people that were able to get as far as, hey, you've bought your two tickets, they're in the cart, you know, where you're waiting to check out, and all of a sudden, Lots of people got error messages saying, oops, uh, there is a glitch, and then your card is wiped out, and then you're sent back into the, the line, never to be heard from again. Then I know a lot of people who just never never got there. I mean, they just they were buried in line, never had an opportunity to buy. So this whole idea of congratulations, you're in, really didn't mean anything at all. So a lot of irate people that are out there making the situation worse is that a number of the people who somehow were able to get tickets through this system, they don't want the tickets. My guess is they're robots, you know, set up in India because, all right, as within five to ten minutes of the site opening up and people being able to buy individual tickets, which I believe cost in the neighborhood of 130 bucks. I, I could be off of $10 here, $10 there. But immediately, again, within like 10 minutes, you could go to these various ticket resale things, the stub hubs, et cetera, and you could see tickets that were purchased for $120 or $130 through this process. They were immediately being resold for three, four, five hundred $500 or even more, leaving, like I say, thousands tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people with a really bad taste in their mouth. Our number, 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Did you get caught up in this fiasco? And is there something that the sellers, the PGA of America, could have done differently to prevent what I, what I think is going to be incredibly bad feelings that have been created for Lots and lots of potential fans. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. First of all, I will say this. Having seen the initial communications, congratulations, you're in. I think that that was deceptive in that it encouraged people to think that, hey, I've advanced to this point where I have a realistic chance of getting tickets. That is not the case. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And secondly, this is a recurring theme. I, I know I've said this before, but this this resale of tickets um, where you have people who don't want to go to the event, who are somehow able to get in. And my guess is, like I say, these are probably robots and, you know, for all I know, they're in India, you know, who are obtaining all these tickets and then turning around and reselling them for three or four times the face value. The fact that you have all these people or entities or businesses or whatever that are able to obtain large numbers of tickets and have no real interest in going to the event 
All they want to do is get the tickets, snatch them away from the people who are the true fans, and then try to monetize it. That bothers me. It has always bothered me. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Sue in Germantown. Sue, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Sue. Um, I, I logged in 30 seconds after I could, so I was right away. I finally got able to buy tickets two and a half hours into my wait. And then I was told there were no match day tickets available. So the only thing I could get was practice tickets. If they would have at least told me when I first logged in and I was waiting that there were no match tickets available, that would have been extremely helpful because I waited two and a half hours for just practice tickets. Let me ask you this. Were there even practice tickets available when you were able to get through? Yes. I I did get two practice tickets for $323. Okay. By the time they had all of the um, extra fees on. Right, right. Um, the It's interesting because a couple of the people that I was working with, same sort of thing happened. And when at least I came on the air, they were still in line, been in line for a couple hours, hoping to maybe get a practice ticket. But my guess is they're going to be um, they're going to be sold out as well. Yeah, like I said, thirty seconds, and and I I started logging in. I within 30 seconds so i didn't wait 10 minutes or anything and i only got practice tickets right got um, it. It, it there needs I to be did, a better way once i once i it says now you're available to buy tickets it took another five to ten minutes to get me to the page and then i got an error message right and i'm like what the heck now so then i hit the back arrow and was in line again 10 minutes and then it took me to the page again and it worked the second time right but that is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Nope, thanks for the call. Oh, well, well, join the club, because this happened to thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people. And again, the other frustrating thing is that a number of people who were able to get the tickets didn't want the tickets. That this is just what they were doing is viewing this as an opportunity. You have an in-demand event here. We're going to get them. We're going to buy them from the PGA. We'll pay 130 bucks or whatever the number is, and then we're going to resell them for three or four times the value. So it's not even it's not even going to fans. Dave in Whitefish Bay. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Yes. Um, yeah, I was a little disappointed because we got stuck this morning as well. Um, <clears throat> I th- I thought the PGA did a great job early in their communications. Um, sending out emails, instructing people as to what to expect. Um, and I thought this was all being a very deliberate process, so uh, this wouldn't happen. But unfortunately, it was myself and my son and one other friend. <clears throat> we all attempted, We all were given access codes, and after about 45 minutes, we were all told there are no match play tickets available, which, by the way, they're $185. 185 okay. Right. Um, in the end, we ended up getting four tickets for the Tuesday practice round. So we'll have an opportunity to get up there and experience it a little bit, but it is very disappointing given the fact that uh, I thought that they were setting up a system so that this wouldn't happen, but unfortunately that's not the case. No, it, it wasn't. No, thank, thanks for the call. Here's a text makes an interesting point. The way the DNR draws limited numbers of hunting licenses would be better than what the PGA did. They have a predetermined number of licenses available, like a predetermined number of tickets. If more people apply, then they have license for the license. They have licenses. They have a lottery drawing. The people that are drawn have a deadline able to purchase their license. Any license that's unclaimed after that deadline goes on sale to the general public. Yeah. So 
you could say, and I think a lot of people maybe thought that when they were registering over the last couple months and they get that email a week ago saying, congratulations, you're in, I think they thought that this is their opportunity now to get the, the tickets. Boy, I've got this number. I can buy them. See, that would be a much fairer way. Now, it still wouldn't eliminate the problem of of the ticket reselling, except you would have an opportunity to verify that it was actually real people that were, were purchasing the, the tickets as opposed to, again, the, I think what's going on with like the robots that are buying these different things. But that way, and then if people, you know, you've issued X amount of opportunities to buy tickets and then people don't take the advantage, whatever you've got left, then you just put up first come, first serve. Let's talk to Russ in Fond du Lac. Russ, you're on WTMJ. Yes, good morning. Uh, kind of like the same situation as a gentleman just prior to me. Um, a year ago, we signed up to get access codes, and then, oh, it was what, maybe right. five weeks ago, said, congratulations, you win the prize. Yeah. So we were somewhat excited about, okay, we have an access code that may give us some opportunities to, um, oh, whatever, get in line prior to the mass sale sure. of the tickets. So we went online and sat there at 10 o'clock this morning and it said congratulations you win the prize yeah. please stay here and wait to administer your access code yeah well 42 minutes later scrolled on the bottom of the screen all match day tickets are sold out right. well okay fine uh if it's going to be like that why even waste people's time to alert them to an access code well right that, that's the, that's the point and that's the bad feelings about this i my guess is what they wanted to do is they just wanted to get all the information for all the people that might be interested in buying tickets knowing that there was never going to be a realistic opportunity for the vast majority of those people to to buy them and i guess if i were one of those people and i wasn't that signed up for this i'd feel really cheated and really angry today well, yeah, I'm disappointed about it. Uh, and my partner in Sheboygan, we were both online at the same time because we were both going to go for Mass sure. Day, Saturday and Sunday. And we went through all that stuff sitting there. And it's like, okay, well, whatever. This is the last time, and I'll never get involved in it again. Yep, no, uh, thanks. For, no, that, different... no, thanks for calling. No, I think that's the reaction a lot of people had. Karen in North Lake here on WTMJ, hello. Hi, Jeff. You have you have a success story. You are the one that got through. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't sign up until September. And through all the emails that we received, I knew that if I got that access code, it does not guarantee you a chance to buy tickets. And mm-hmm. they, they were really clear if you read all the information. And when I went on today, I, I got in line at 9. And at 10 o'clock, by 10.20, I had my four tickets that I wanted for Thursday. And so did my daughter-in-law in Fond du Lac. We both did it. So you, you weren't you weren't trying for you were trying for the you don't you weren't trying for the match day you were trying for the practice no. round yeah and I think that's the other thing is I think it's fifteen thousand tickets we're talking about worldwide we're not just talking about little Wisconsin here you realize you know, Karen there's all sorts of people listening to you who are wishing you the best but are grumbling <laughs> now, how does she get let me let me ask you the flip side of this does it bother you? that a lot of the people that were able to get through, get the tickets, didn't want to go. They're just turned around immediately. Because like I say, by about 10 after 10, there were all sorts of tickets, presumably that had been purchased, that were now being sold on StubHub or whatever for three or four times the price. Well, that's for everything, though, Jeff. No, I understand. 
I, 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 you know, I get it. I, I, you know, I guess I do feel fortunate now because I was totally unaware that there's so many people that are so upset because it was so easy for us. Well, <laughs> thank, thanks for the call. Like I say, there's people grinding their teeth going, easy. Here's what, Jeff, I was, after getting the access code and waiting an hour, um, I got disconnected. Jeff, very uh, frustrated with the PGA today. But my, while waiting my turn, the website did provide updates when the match tickets were gone. I, again, I, I just I think the way this was handled left a bad feeling in a lot of people's mouths. But, you know, Karen got her tickets. And at least it's nice to know somebody who did. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. All right. They, first you want jobs. Then they figure out a way to bring jobs in. And now people say, well, we don't want those kind of jobs. It, you know, I look, I'm very critical of Mayor Tom Barrett and the administration of the city of Milwaukee from time to time. But this is one where people have to be pulling out their hair. The When I say century city, I, I, I don't know if people exactly know what that is, but century city is an area that the city of Milwaukee has been trying to develop since 2009. It starts approximately on 31st and Capitol. So you're talking about an economically depressed area. This is where, the old for for people who are old-timers, it's where A.O. Smith was and, you know, Tower Automotive for years and years. But it's been vacant, largely for years and years. It's about an 80-acre space. And the city has been trying desperately since 2009 when they took over this space and began spending a ton of money, like $40 million, to try to you know remediate, remediate blight and do environmental cleanup. I mean, like I say, it was Tower Automotive and it was A.O. Smith. There was a huge investment. And the idea was, if we're going to try to bring jobs to the north side of Milwaukee, an area that desperately needs jobs, well, you know, we, we, what better to try to have a location where you have businesses. Well, it's been a tough slog for the city. High crime rate, inaccessibility to the freeway. I mean, it's landlocked. I mean, places that they tried to push into Century City have gone elsewhere, including the Menominee Valley, because you've got easy access to the freeway. You don't have that on 31st and and Capitol. So they've been trying very, very hard to get businesses to locate there. Um, Since 2014, it's been ready for 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 businesses and other than a, a brewery and some of the talgo manufacturing things it, it's really been been largely vacant so here's the deal with much fanfare they make arrangements this would be the city that they found a, a factory they found a business that is willing and wants to come and relocate in the city and this is this it, it's a meat packer it's strauss brands Right now, they're located in Franklin, and what they want to do is they're willing to say, okay, we're going to, we will come in here, and, you know, what we're going to do is we'll buy the property, and the city's going to give them a good deal. That's, there's no question about it. I think they're going to sell them an an area like this for, for like a buck. And that's fine. And then they're going to locate there. And then there's incentives that are going to be paid out up to four point five million. But the meat packer says, here, here's the deal. You know, we think that we can employ, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of four to five hundred people at 
we'll move these meatpacking operations here. And it's a very, very modern, high-tech kind of meatpacking operation. They are viewed in Franklin as being a very, very good neighbor. So this isn't something where you've got all these problems that are out there. You know, and, and they use... When you, when you hear, I understand, when you hear Slaughterhouse, you think of, oh, oh my gosh, you know, the Upton Sinclair books of the 1920s, and oh, this is going to smell and do all that. Well, th- their facility in Franklin has none of these problems because they use, again, all these high-end techniques and refrigeration and stuff like that. It's not like you might have thought, again, if you've read books that were written in the 1920s. It's a modern type of meat processing facility. It's going to provide hundreds of jobs to an area that desperately needs those jobs and the jobs are good in Franklin they pay somewhere you know starting between like 13 and 17 bucks an hour and it goes up from there everybody says that this is a good employer and you're talking about hundreds of jobs for an area that needs it so the redevelopment authority signs off on this okay this is all outstanding that you know the city thinks this is a really great idea well what happens is the common council yesterday decides to get involved with this And what happens is you have a number of protesters who show up at the Common Council meeting holding signs reading slaughterhouses harm communities and stop the slaughter. And they argue, okay, you you shouldn't allow this business to locate there. Now, by the way, a lot of the people that showed up to protest aren't people who live in that area. Not, I'm not saying that there was nobody, but a lot of the people that show up aren't people that sh- are, live in the area. There are people who don't like meat and don't like slaughterhouses and don't like meat processing. So, you know, they show up and they say that they're very, very upset about this whole thing. Interestingly, one of the aldermen, Khalif Rainey, who, rec- who represents the district, he says, hey, 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 wait a second, you know, we, we noticed this. And he said, I know the people that are in my neighborhood, and I'm looking at all these people who are protesting the facility. They're, they're, they're not our our neighbors. You know, we need these jobs, you know, in this particular area. All right. The plans called for the company to break ground in November, start operating in 2021. They estimate, again, hundreds and hundreds of jobs. What happened yesterday is the Common Council, rather than approving this, sent it back to committee for more hearings um, so that they could take into account well, I guess some of the concerns from some of these anti-meat folks. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, here's the bottom line. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, you know, we want indu- we want industry. We want production companies to be moving into these areas. We want accessible jobs for areas that are economically depressed. And then at the same time say, well, we didn't mean those kind of jobs. I mean, gee, you, you, it's, it's a meat processor. It's a slaughterhouse. How could you put it in this area? You know, well, all right, the people in Franklin have no problems with this at all. I think the Common Council should have been doing handstands that the city was able to find this business that would locate into an area, an area that, quite frankly, a lot of businesses would not touch with a 10-foot pole. And now 
they're saying, well, let's send it back and let's consider it. And they're going to end up effectively delaying the groundbreaking, which means either killing this project or delaying the jobs for all sorts of people. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, this is to me, this is extremely frustrating. And I would be very curious to know, of all the people that showed up and, and protested, they don't like slaughterhouses. Okay, it, it's not that these people aren't going to be bad, aren't going to be good neighbors. It's not going to be that there's smells. It's going to be, well, we just don't like this business. Well, okay, then, then don't eat meat, pal. But for the rest of us, you know, you got them. If you like lamb, this is where you got to go. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 414-799-1620. I, I tell you, this stuff just makes me crazy. You know, for years and years, the city of Milwaukee has been trying to find a, a, a company of substantial size that is willing to locate in the Century City area, the old Tower Automotive, A.O. Smith thing. It's essentially been a ghost town. There's a couple small operations. So now they've made arrangements. You've got this business. It's, it's a meat processor out of Franklin. They want to move. They want to build a new facility. They're going to spend somewhere between 60 and $70 million on this production facility in the Century City Business Park. It will employ hundreds of people at good paying jobs and you've got a bunch of people who are showing up saying well we don't like slaughterhouses and that's really what the objection is we don't like slaughterhouses and we think you know we're the workers going to have post-traumatic stress syndrome or something like that well oh okay for goodness sake you can't have it both ways taylor in river hills taylor you're on wtmj uh good afternoon jeff once Hi. again thanks for taking my sure. call i appreciate it sure so uh, about an hour ago, I called a local African-American radio station to find out some information about the protests and what about the um, more about the project. Mm-hmm. And what I was told with, I believe, Khalif Rady was also, uh, he came on after the show, but commented a little bit, but I was working, I couldn't hear very much. Those people were 95%. They didn't can say specifically all people from PETA. Yeah. And they also said that a number of aldermen have been kept in the dark about the process and that the community does not have enough information to basically make a, a, a decision on whether they want it or not. So when I asked about, you know, who was against so far, they say that not a lot of people are against it. A lot of people don't know anything about it. Well, but the, most of the people that, to your point, most of the people that showed up to protest weren't people from the district. It was the anti-meat people, the PETA folks, that, that are going to oppose slaughterhouses, period. That is correct. And even one of the radio, uh, one of the radio talk show uh, people said, you know what, I really can't give my opinion because I've barely heard anything about it. And the only person who complained said that, well, I don't know yet because my mom's been in the neighborhood for 75 years, and there might be some changes, but that's all I know. Got it. Well, Taylor, thanks for call. I, I guess my, my, my point is, okay, first of all, this is not an unknown commodity. This the, this meat packer, Strauss, they, they've, they've, they, right now they have a facility in, in Franklin. So, and my understanding is, 
Franklin would love to keep the factory there. They're going to build, and they would love to have this company decide to build, like if they need a new factory, they'd love to have it build it, you know, in addition to where they are now. They would love to do that. So Milwaukee is competing with these other places. As far as I can tell, there, it's not like anybody argues that Strauss is a bad corporate citizen. You know, I, I was reading about how this operates, and people say, well, you know, we, we need more information. I don't know what exactly that means. I mean, what they say is it's, it's going to be a meat processing plant. It's going to be, you know, we're going to operate it like we operate our one in Franklin. They expect that there's going to be up to 500 animals processed the facility daily. The animals are offloaded into trucks. They're taken into an indoor facility. Waste drops into the basement. It's never stored outdoors. They say the facility will remove 90% of the odor and that scrubbers could be added in the future to remove 100% of the odor. The company's going to relocate its headquarters to this area. And, and I mean, you, you look at that kind of stuff and you have to recognize this is, it's not like this particular location. It's not like they have a ton of businesses that are falling over themselves to try to locate here. I mean, that's just the reality. For whatever reasons, this has been a ghost town, well, essentially since the city bought it in 2009. They did all the remediation stuff, so 2014 is when they wanted to start leasing. And like I say, they, they don't have – this would be the first major employer, as far as a large number of people, that would be moving in here. They should, like I said, have been doing handstands trying to get this business in there. But instead, you know, you're, you're giving in to the animal rights nuts, the, the people who don't want to eat meat, most of whom aren't from the district, saying, okay, we want more hearings on this. We want more hearings so we can preserve Presumably bring people in from all over the country to protest. I mean, I guess, you know, if we're going to get to a point where we want to say that to me, the fundamental question is, are these good paying jobs? Is this going to be an asset to the community? Is this going to fill a need? And the answer to all those is clearly yes, yes, yes. And here's the bottom line. City of Milwaukee better be really careful here. They better be careful. And again, this isn't directed at the mayor. Mayor wanted to get this through. His city development people wanted to get this through. The redevelopment authority wanted to get this through. It's because you had some people at the Common Council who've decided to kind of give in to aspects of the kook fringe. Be really careful here because if you turn this down and you put up too many borders or you decide that you're going to make the city have too many hoops for the city to for this company to jump through, you know what's going to happen? They're going to say Okay, Franklin, let's sit down and let's talk. And maybe we should build the new facility out here. Then we're not going to have to worry about, you know, displacing workers or anything like that. And then what do you have? Better be really careful here. This is the Common Council. I think they are playing with fire. And they're doing it for all the wrong reasons because, again, you've got some of these animal rights activists who care less about the community than they do about advancing their own agenda. And it's not like you're not going to build that slaughterhouse. That that slaughterhouse is going to be built somewhere. The question is, do you want to be built in the city of Milwaukee where it can employ four or 500 people who desperately need jobs? Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Drew, do you ever watch on ESPN the World Series of Poker? They, they show it every July, and then they show replays of it. You ever watch it? 
long time ago, maybe oh. ten years ago. Okay, well, it, it's you don't have to. I, I watched every once in a while because it's kind of intriguing, gets drawn in. But every year they have all these poker players that come to Las Vegas and they play in all these events, and then at at the end. They have their, what they call the main event, and they have thousands and thousands of people who sign up and pay $10,000 apiece for the opportunity to play. And then they play and they play and they winnow down the crowd, and, and ultimately somebody wins. This year, the winner got in the neighborhood of $10 million. The winner got like $10 million. And what they do at their what they call the final table – the final table is when they've whittled it down to like nine players. What they do is after the people start dropping off and after they get down to two players, what they do is they bring out all the money. And if you've ever watched this, you, you know what it looks like. They bring out, in this case, $10 million. And they just stack it up on the table. And it's just stacks and stacks and stacks of of hundred dollar bills, I guess it is, and it's just you would be you would be amazed if you haven't seen this at how much space ten million dollars takes up. All right, now if you are familiar with the World Series of Poker and that huge stack of money, and trust me, it's this enormous stack. You could ski on this stack of of bills. Imagine a stack. That was four and a half times taller than that. Not the 10 million, not 20, not 30, not 40, but 47 million dollars. Imagine this just enormous pile of money, a mini ski hill full of money. Imagine that. And then imagine somebody coming along, taking a can of lighter fluid, pouring it on that huge stack of money, and then lighting a match. Why do I say that? Because last night, if you watched the Democrat debate, you saw $47 million, figuratively speaking, lit on fire. One of the candidates who was on the stage, and and perhaps you had never seen him before, was this guy named Tom Steyer. If you wonder how Tom Steyer got onto this stage with Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and and all the rest, if you wonder where this guy came from, it was because in the last three months, he took $47 million of his own money, yes, his, his own money, and he spent it with the intention of trying to get himself onto that stage. He spent $15.6 million on media ad buys. He spent $14.8 million on digital ad buys. He spent $3.7 million on direct mail. Hundreds of thousands of dollars more were spent on production costs. Now, he's still polling like about 1% to 2%, despite spending $47 million in, in three months. But he was able to spend enough money and in addition to his own you know 47 million he apparently through like direct mail and stuff was able to convince small donors to the tune of two million dollars to send him money so he spent 47 million dollars to raise two million and because he was able to do that 
and he was able to donate so much money to his campaign, he he got his space on the stage. And you got to see him for a few minutes last night. Didn't move the needle at all. But he spent $47 bucks of his own money to do that. Now, I understand that he's worth $1.6 billion. This guy is a very, very liberal guy, but he, he was a hedge fund manager, made – and he's a billionaire, so he decided, okay, well, I guess if you've got, one, if you're worth 1.6 billion, what's 46 million dollars or 47 million dollars here or there? But he spent it, and in my opinion, just completely sent it up in flames because nothing you saw last night moved the needle. And I remember watching this guy, and I was watching the Democratic debate last night with my wife, and she kept saying. Who is this guy? I've never heard of him. I've never seen him before. And I said, now this is billionaire. He spent $47 million to get on the stage. And all she could say was $47 million. Imagine what you could do, the good you could do, the things that you could do for people that you say you care about. If you had $47 million and you decided to like put it into the community and stuff like that, instead of spending it on media ad buys and digital ads and direct mail all to get yourself like 1% or 1.5% in the polls so you could be on that stage. So big loser last night, I, I think it had to be Tom Steyer, who spent $47 million in, in three months on his presidential bid. It's his money. He can spend it however he wanted. But, boy, you want to talk about just lighting an enormous stack of money on fire. That was it. All right, our number is 414-799-1620. I did... I have to admit, a lot of times I just watch some of the highlights of the debate. Last night, I watched the first two hours of the debate, and I think I got a pretty good flavor of what was going on, and then, you know, read a number of the analyses of this afterwards. Certainly, I saw enough of it to have an opinion as to who did well and who I, I don't think did well. I want to start this segment off by just having a general sort of conversation. 414-799-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. In your mind, was there a big winner or winners last night? Were there big losers? Who came out? Who did the best? Who did the worst? Who, besides Tom Steyer, is it time to just simply get off the stage because they're not going to win? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Winners and losers from last night's debate. I have my list, but I'm curious as to what you thought. 414-799-1620, we're back to discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, big winners, big losers. If you watched last night's debate, I watched the first two hours of it. Here's a text. Jeff, big loser, the Democratic Party. Surely they can whittle the field down to six candidates. I I agree. The whole... I, part of it was, and, and look, I've moderated debates, but when you've got 12 people, and the reality is, of those 12 people, eight of the 12 don't have a realistic chance of being the Democrat nominee. They, they just, they're there for vanity or because of Tom Steyer, because they're rich or whatever, and, and just 
having to include those people in the debate, I think, ends up dragging it down. It makes it tougher to follow, and it stops like this free flow of information where you'd like to see people push the different candidates. Okay, when Elizabeth Warren refuses to acknowledge, says the same thing over and over again, and refuses to acknowledge what everybody knows, that if you do Medicare for all, it's going to make middle-class taxes go through the roof. She just keeps repeating the talking point. Well, health care costs are going to go down. Well, that's not the question. The question is, are taxes going to go up? And she won't answer it. But because you have to incorporate all these other voices that are in there, you, you don't get a chance to focus on the main candidates. So, I mean, I found that to be incredibly distracting as well. Jeff, the big loser is Anderson Cooper by asking about Ellen last night. What about climate change, immigration, and the need to switch to socialism, etc.? That that Actually, that came at the end. I didn't see it, but I, I, I saw the clip this morning when I went back. Yeah, his last question was, you know, what did you think about Ellen? And a number of the candidates appropriately so mocked him, saying, really, this is how we're going to, you know, wrap this whole thing up um yeah okay so who do i think are the winners and who do i think are the losers i mean here all right here's a couple winners i think amy klubachar the senator from minnesota i thought she did a, a very good job i think she went after elizabeth warren and and tried to pin warren down to the extent she could on how disneyland and disney world a lot of the warren proposals are and how this is just it's kind of fantasy land about that and i think she did a very good job about it now do i think amy klubuchar is going to be the democrat nominee no i don't do i think that she is certainly in a position to be a vice presidential choice if somebody like joe biden were to get the nomination yeah i do i I think she'd she'd be outstanding. Another winner in my mind, Bernie Sanders. Now, you got to understand the background here. Bernie comes into this after the heart attack a couple weeks ago, and I think a lot of people are kind of watching this saying, has he slowed down? What is the effect? He's 78 years old. What what does his health look like? And i got to tell you, Bernie... I think Bernie was more lively in this debate than he was in, in the previous ones. And, of course, look, I, Bernie Sanders drives me. Every time I see him, he reminds me of Grandpa Simpson, you know, kind of like that angry old man that's screaming and shouting and things like that. There's no way in the world that I would ever vote for Bernie Sanders. But if you if you are if you believe this country needs a, a socialist president and if you want to completely and totally blow up our capitalistic system and do away with the health insurance industry and uh, do away with all private hospitals and essentially have the government control all of this and put you know onerous taxes on wealthy people if you believe that that's the way to better our society you know bernie is the embodiment of it and i mean he he gave people all sorts of of cannon fodder for that last night so i mean i thought bernie for what he is i mean did well Elizabeth Warren, I think she came out okay. And again, I would never, never vote for Elizabeth Warren. And and th- th- her manner is, I have a plan for this, I have a plan for that, I have a plan for this, drives me absolutely crazy. Her inability and her unwillingness to acknowledge the ramifications of some of her plans, uh, again, it's incredibly frustrating, um, but it, it's who she is. She kind of reverts to the stump speech stuff when she gets pushed. But she did get pushed last night, and I don't think she got flustered by anything. So, I mean, to the extent that... That she has become the leader, um, I, I think she did. She did well, and of course, the, the general consensus is that Mayor Pete, um, by advancing 
a more moderate agenda than the Bernie Sanders of the world and the Elizabeth Warrens of the world, and also explaining why his policies make sense, as opposed to kind of, again, some of the fantasy land from the far left. Uh, the general consensus is that Mayor Pete did very, very well, and I don't necessarily disagree with that. Is that going to be enough to change the dynamic? No. But the truth of the matter is, I mean, right now, the, the the oxygen in the room is all being swallowed by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. And, you know, may, maybe there's room for an A.B. Klobuchar. Maybe there's room for a Mayor Pete. But the bottom line is, for the rest of them, they're just taking up space. And, you know, the sooner they end up moving on, the, the better. So you can start to concentrate on the stuff that really is important. But. Uh, you know, I, I think Mayor Pete was the guy that emerged, also Amy Klobuchar. Those two, I think, emerged. Is it going to help them raise money? Probably not. And from the Democrat perspective, I think they'd be a lot better off to tighten it up so the next time around you, you've just got a handful of candidates. I thought it was a bad night for Joe Biden. Um, and, again, I I view this from the perspective of – I think if Biden is the nominee and runs against President Trump, Biden wins. I know some people disagree with me on that, but I, I, I think I think Biden wins. I think if it's like an Elizabeth Warren, you've got a completely different dynamic because then the issue doesn't necessarily become President Trump. The issue becomes, do you want to fundamentally remake America? And I still don't think, regardless of how people feel about Donald Trump and how aggravated they are about certain things, legitimately so in many cases cases i just don't think america is ready to turn to somebody like an elizabeth warren i I don't so i i I, in many respects as somebody who cares about the future of the country i i wanted to see biden do well because i don't find biden to be scary i think elizabeth warren or bernie sanders are scary so i i wanted him to do well i thought biden was confused about stuff he hesitated on certain issues he made some verbal missteps and i thought he really candidly you know butchered the whole question when they were asking him about i mean about his son um about his son you know what what happened and again anderson cooper at the beginning of the debate you know asked biden okay hunter biden your kid is ruling out working overseas if you become president all right, you say there's nothing wrong with, you know, you know what he did. Well, okay, if he's ruling out doing this when the, if you become president, why do you say there was nothing wrong when he was doing it when he was vice president? I mean, which is a very, very good question. If there's nothing wrong with it, well, then why not work overseas when, you know, if if Biden gets elected president? And, and Biden refused to answer that question. He kept saying, you know, that, he kept saying, oh, you know, that there, I stand by my son and I stand by his statement. No, as we talked about yesterday, the truth of the matter is that the whole thing is sleazy. Do I think it's criminal? No. But there's no question that, you know, Hunter Biden was trading on the fact that his dad was the vice president supposedly monitoring corruption in the Ukraine when he got hired for a $50,000 a month consulting gig by a Ukrainian oligarch. He wouldn't have gotten hired for that if his last name wasn't Biden and his dad wasn't the vice president. Do I think it's illegal? No. Should it be illegal? Well, that's a different conversation. But, you know, the bottom line of all this is that... It was sleazy. 
And I, I think it's going to hurt Joe Biden. And I thought his, his answer yesterday, simply saying, I stand by my son, avoids the issue because the son says he wouldn't do it if Biden was the president. Well, then. If he wouldn't do it if he's president, why was it okay to do it when he was the vice president? A very fair question. I thought it was a bad night for Joe Biden. The fundraising numbers are out as well, and he's spending more money than he's taking in. Um, he certainly lost front-runner status. Now, that doesn't mean he can't get it back. Uh, but, I mean, right now the Biden campaign, I think, is in a bit of trouble. He's got to figure out how to do it. So big winners, Mayor Pete, Amy Klobuchar, Bernie Sanders, and to an extent Elizabeth Warren, not as big a winner, but she came through unscathed. Pretty much everybody else was losers and kind of needs to start clearing the stage. When we come back, I want to talk about a couple issues that came up last night. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. tax wealthy people enough in this country. Now, one of the interesting things that emerged from the Democrat debate yesterday was this clear idea that people who are wealthy aren't contributing enough to society and they aren't paying their fair share. The idea, and Elizabeth Warren kind of expressed it in the debate where she said, well, yes, but people who've gotten wealthy, chances are, yes, they've had great ideas and they've worked hard, but they've also taken advantage of, you know, other people. They've used other people, you know, to do work who worked for them, and they've used access to government resources like roads and things like that, and so they have an obligation to give back. And I remember listening to this thinking, well, yeah, but at the same time, they've paid people salaries. You know, they've come up with that good idea. They've hired people. They've built businesses. They've paid people salaries along the way. And Lord knows they've paid a lot in taxes along the way, which brings us to one of the things that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are pushing hard for. And it has on one level, it has an appeal, which is tax people who have more than you. Because I guess the idea is always, well, you know, what, what the heck, if it's somebody else, you know, why should we care? And I admit I express this philosophy sometimes. I mean, the, the mayor of the city of Milwaukee and the county executive want to have a, a the ability to have a referendum in Milwaukee County to raise the sales tax. All right. My attitude is if I lived in Milwaukee County, I'd vote no, but I don't vote. I don't live in Milwaukee County. So, all right, may, maybe people in Milwaukee County should decide that it doesn't directly affect me. And I'm not somebody who is going to be affected by these like tax ideas. Right now in this country, we tax income as a general rule. Let me explain what that means. You earn X amount of dollars in a given year. Let's say you earn 50,000 bucks, all right? Your employer, let's say you, you work for an employer, not self-employed. You, you, you earn $50,000, right, a year. Your employer deducts you, you have taxes withheld from that $50,000. At the end of the year, what happens is you settle up with the IRS, and you send in your tax form, and you say, okay, I earned $50,000, I have these tax credits, etc., etc., and this is how much I have to pay. Whatever you have left after paying your taxes 
is yours. So let's say for the sake of argument, just my example, $50,000 in income, and after you paid your federal and your state tax, you end up with $40,000, okay? The way our system works is that $40,000 is yours, and you're not going to be taxed again on it. So let's say you take that $40,000 and you buy a stock, you invest in the Fudgy Wudgy Chocolate Pump Company, and you take that $40,000 and, and you put it into that, that stock, all right? And the Fudgy Wudgy Chocolate Pump Company takes off, and the stock doubles. And a year from now, it's worth $80,000, and you sell it. All right, well, you don't, you sell it, you get eighty grand. You don't pay taxes on $80,000. You pay tax on $40,000. Why? Because you've already paid tax on that first $40,000. That the amount you invested, it's, you know, that you'd pay tax on. That was from, you know, that was your after-tax dollars. You made money, so you have to pay money on the difference between, you know, what you had and what you got. We tax income. And that's one of the ways that people are accumul- able to accumulate wealth. Because you pay tax on your income, you invest it, and you reinvest it, and you make money. And you always pay tax on your earnings, right? The things that you've earned. But you don't pay tax on your wealth. You don't pay tax on the assets because you've paid tax on it. Well, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, they don't think that that's right. They think that that has led too many people to accumulate too much money. So what Elizabeth Warren wants to do is she wants to say, okay, we're going to look at people who have a bunch of money. And if you have assets totaling $50 million, hers is $50 million, I think Bernie's is $32 million. But if, if you have these assets, we think you have too much money. You've accumulated too much. So what we want to do is we want to put – a tax, not just on your income, but we want to tax your wealth, your assets. Every year, we want to sit back and we want to assess how much your house or houses are worth and how much your cars are worth and how much your investments are worth. And if they're over a certain threshold, we are going to oppose a tax on that. And then the next year, we're going to impose a tax on that. So we're not just taxing your income. We're taxing your assets, your, your wealth. And we're going to keep doing that. And the more money you have, the more tax that we are going to take. And the idea is then we're going to take that money and we're going to redistribute it to people who have less. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. When they have tried this in other countries, as one of the candidates pointed out, in Europe, they've tried this in several countries in Europe, it has failed every time because it's just unworkable. It's, number one, really impossible to try to get a handle on a yearly basis about how many assets people have. Secondly, people who have assets, the wealthier people, they have options. So the idea is, hey, if you're going to you're going to tax my assets, you know what? I'm going to move to Ireland. <laughs> you know, or, or you know what? I'm I'm going to move somewhere else. I'm going to move to Mexico. I'm going to move to Canada. You you have the ability to do those type of things. And in other countries that is precisely what's happened. But let's talk about the fundamental idea. Everybody pays income, pays taxes on their income. All right. Do you think it's fair? that we also ask certain people, the, the wealthier people, 
and you can define wealthy however you want. And like I say, right now people are talking about 32 million, but I guarantee you, once this gets a foothold, it's going to be 20 million. It's going to be 10 million. It's going to be 5 million. It's once this gets a foothold, it will be a new way of looking at taxation. Should we do this? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Let's take a couple texts just before we go to the phones. Jeff, this isn't fair at all. Once they allow it for millionaires, it sets a precedent that the country is okay with it. Soon enough, it'll be on everybody. I agree. We pay enough in taxes. Taxing people on their assets only promotes them to work less. This goes against our capitalist country is all about. Jeff, this is from Chris. All a new tax process will do is motivate people to not invest in America and move more wealth offshore. It will decrease tax resources. It'll have the opposite effect. And interestingly, in a number of the countries that have tried this, Denmark, for example, that's exactly what they found. Because people who have assets have options. And if you start making it a tax hell, they start exercising those options. Think of it like this. How many people leave who aren't millionaires or multimillionaires? How many people leave Wisconsin when they retire to head to lower tax states? A lot. A a lot. But it's the same sort of principle. You have different options, and you say, gee, I can move to Tennessee. I love it here in Milwaukee, or I love it here in Wisconsin, but I can move to Tennessee, and my money's going to go a lot farther, and I can live a lot longer. And so you have people from modest incomes that are making that choice based on tax policy. Well, imagine if you have people that have the wealthier people that are employing folks and are contributing to charities and are buying houses and are buying stuff that employ people that have to make the stuff that they buy. Imagine if you said to them, them, all right, we're going to single you out and we're going to try to tax the heck out of you. Well, you don't think that they're going to do what retirees do when they have an option to flee Wisconsin, for example, because of a lower tax thing? You don't think they're going to say, hey, okay, we're going to figure out ways that we're going to move our assets so they're not subject to U.S. taxes. Of course they're going to do it. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Ben in Port Washington. Ben, you're on WTMJ. Oh, thanks, Jeff. Okay. Um, I think, first of all, compliance. They can't even collect the taxes that are due today. There's fewer IRS officials out. The compliance is the biggest issue, number one. But number two, what disturbs me the most, and none of the people questioning the politicians are asking, how actuarially are you coming up with this number? Yeah. Okay, how long will this money last? And because everybody has a good idea for a safety blanket, safety net, but I haven't heard one person question those individuals. Besides the goodness of their idea or what they're trying to get, um, how much there has been none, and that disturbs me the most, uh, I believe, in a safety blanket. But we've seen evidence now of Social Security 35, Medicare in 65. Right. Good ideas, but we can't even fund them. So I can tell you right now, they may be able to institute this, but they'll never be able to collect it. Well, right, because people are going to. So, I mean, people, that, and that's what they found in European countries where they tried this. It, it's almost impossible to try to figure this out and assess how many assets people have and how do you define that? Because, all right, you know, do you. 
All right, so it, it's not your asset. You put it in a trust. Does that mean that the trust is going to be taxed? That you're going to do all these sorts of things. It's just, it's one of these ideas that I guess maybe has this populist sort of appeal. Let's soak it to the wealthy. That person, you know, that, that person's worth $10 million. Well, you're never going to be worth $10 million. They don't need that $10 million. Let's take some of it from them and give it to you. Well, okay, maybe that that has a degree of appeal if you want to play class warfare, but I don't think it's effective. Tracy in Green Bay. Tracy, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Hi there. So um, two comments. The first one is Elizabeth Warren's comment basically stating that if you built a business um, that – you know, wasn't really you, it was, you know, us giving you roads and, and the government doing it is like Obama's comment a number of years ago when he was president about, um, yeah, if you built a business, you didn't do it, the government did it for you. And that, as a business owner, it made me so angry and it makes me so angry again. The rhetoric just doesn't stop. Well, right, the because, because, is, because yes, it's true that you used roads and you used sidewalks <laughs> or whatever, but you paid for those, you know, I you guess, paid your taxes, uses right? Them. Yeah. You know, everybody uses them. It's ridiculous. If you're driving to work at McDonald's, you use the roads, but that doesn't mean the government paid you that job. It's, it's just, they, they say the, you know, I think a reasonable person just hears what they're saying and, and just can't believe it. It doesn't make any sense. So the, the second thing is, so you want to take more money from someone else and you want to give it to someone else. They never say what they want to do with this money. And right. frankly, the government is a poor steward of our money. I'm tired of paying taxes. I'd like to pay for my roads. I like to pay for my police and the military. But where's the rest of this money going? Leave, right. leave the people who have the money to give the money, like I like to do, to who I believe that deserves it. And we'd be a better society if we just kind of got the government out of the business of redistributing wealth and well, let them build the road so we can bring the money to the people we think that should have it. Well, well the other thing, Tracy, is if you're going to punish success, success measured by the accumulation of wealth, what what does it do with investment? So let me, let, let's, let's say... I have, I, I have, I've accumulated, I've saved some money that I pay taxes on, and I, I'm looking at what do I do with this money? Okay, well, I could say I, I'll, I'll invest this. I'll put this money at risk. I'll, I'll contribute to building a housing project or, or something like that with the idea knowing that this could fail and I could lose all the money. But the mm-hmm. flip side is, hey, if it's a success, and I make money, well, then I will have made too much money, so now they're going to start taxing me on the value of the apartment building in addition to, you know, whatever income I get. It To me, it's just fundamentally unfair, and this is from the perspective of somebody who's never going to have a net worth of a billion dollars, but but it's still, it's right. just fundamentally unfair. It is. I, I agree. It's, it's just another idea that's nothing about, you said it, division, class warfare, and they may think they're progressive, but let's be realistic. They're just about... Um, stirring the pot and right. uh, getting their votes that way. It right. makes uh, me very upset. You know, th- thanks for call. And that's why, I mean, I, I was encouraged. A couple of the second-tier candidates last night, you know, called them on this. They said, look, this is, it's just, it's pie in the sky. This is not going to work. It hasn't worked in Europe where, you know, they, they tried it. They ended up having to repeal it because, actually, they found they ended up collecting less money than they thought that they would. 414-799-1620. Tina in Milwaukee. Tina, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you doing, Jeff? I am well. What do you think about all this? You know, I agree with you. I, even as a Democrat, I agree that we should not tax our assets. If you are strong, independent, and you make money on your own, and you invest that money, that's your money. Mm -hmm. 
But the problem is that a lot of people who have a lot of money know tax loopholes, mm-hmm. and they know, so they know how to kind of hide. Mm-hmm. All right? Yep. Now we have the other end. You have the extremely poor who get tax breaks because they're so poor. What happened to the guys in the middle, like us, yeah. who work for a living, who work two or three jobs just to make ends meet? Mm-hmm. What happened to us? Well, you see, Tina, Nobody I, talks about us. Well, you know, and that that's... That's it. it. It's this whole vanishing sort of middle class thing. And I think that's that's a topic for another day, but it's a fair topic for another day. You know what? You know, what can we do to help increase and grow the middle class? And and, and how can tax policy affect that? Not this idea that we have to soak the people that have more money than we think that they should have but let's let's figure out what's fair and make sure everybody pays their fair share and if that means some high income individuals have to pay more money well at least let's have that conversation but let's not say we're going to try to figure out how much your house is worth and we're going to dun you on that every year because maybe people won't spend money on big houses anymore and that won't help anybody exactly and i get i have property taxes i pay them every year it's part of life you have to do it. But it's the the fact that in the middle class, yep. we're struggling. Yep. No, and I think we that... We are struggling here, and people don't... It's either the rich or the poor. Talk about the middle class. I'm sorry, but we're stuck. We're struggling. Well, Tina, thank, thank you for the call. And actually, you have given me the fodder for... At least we will have this discussion, I promise, sometime next week when I come back. I, I want to think about how to frame it. But yeah, it, it, the middle class is is, I think, largely forgotten sometimes in these discussions. Wealthier people are viewed as this this giant wallet that, you know, we should be able to take more and more money from. And then, you know, you you have the the programs for people at the bottom. But what about the middle class? We will have that conversation, I promise. Mike and Mequon. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Yes, I think it's a very bad idea for a couple of reasons. But number one, we already have a wealth tax. It's called the federal estate tax, and when people die, there is an assessment for a federal estate if you're over the exemption. There is a very large exemption. I don't forget the amount, $14, $15 million, so there's quite a nice exemption. But it's a, it's a wealth tax, just what they're talking about. Yep, but Secondly, you, have, you have to die before they collect it. This they would try to collect every year. Every year, but then you're going to have another problem, and that is if you have a closely held business or real estate, yep. Those values fluctuate from year to year, and there's always been battles in the federal estate tax area, but now you would have it every year, mm-hmm. of what the values are in a fight with the IRS and mm-hmm. an audit with the IRS and running up more expenses for taxpayers as they fight the values every year, year after year on yeah. these things. And, and Mike, yeah, and let, let me give you another example. Uh, imagine the family farms. Okay, so you have, you know, you have land. Lots of land that, you know, you farm on a yearly basis that, that probably has a high value, but, but again, it's not a liquid asset. So, you know, I mean, let, let's say the land is worth $5 million or $10 million or whatever if, if you were to sell it, but you don't intend to sell it. You know, it's a working farm. So, you know, where, where are you going to, if you're that family farmer, you know, where are you going to come up with the taxes to pay if they assess your land at $5 million? Yes, you've got a lot of money tied up in it, but it's not liquid. Well, that's true. Yeah. No, I mean, think, I mean, it, it's all those different. It's all those different types of problems. I mean, again, imagine the 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 family farm, 
and that the land is worth a lot because you have farmland that's right next to the freeway, and there's these developers that would love to come in and would love to buy up your family farm and take 100 acres or 200 acres and turn it into some giant shopping center. It happens all the time. So what are we supposed to do? Well, okay, we're going to tax you at whatever the value of the land is. That's what it's worth, and so every year you're going to have to come up with X percent. Look, if you want to talk about raising taxes on higher earners, I'm, I'm willing to have that discussion, and we can argue the merits of it, but this idea that we're going to tax the wealthy based on their assets, it it's never worked anywhere it's been tried. I think it is grossly un-American, and again, this is from the perspective of somebody who doesn't expect to be a billionaire in his lifetime. This is Jeff Wagner. When we come back, all right, school starts times, and I don't know, some people want to reboot a TV show from decades ago, we're going to discuss. You don't want to miss this. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Last Friday, during Pop Culture Corner, I, I used that the topic was television shows that you would like to see rebooted. And, and the catalyst for that was there's the, the new Breaking Bad movie that dropped on Netflix. Tony Baddock, you watched, did you see I that? Did. Yep. And what did you think of it? I thought it was very solid. Didn't detract from anything Breaking Bad did, but I thought it was, it didn't really add too much either. It, it wrapped up uh, it nice wrapped up. It wrapped up the Jesse story. Yep. Yeah, I, I I thought it was a tad slow in a couple parts, but mm-hmm. that, but that's, but I'm quibbling. It, yeah. I thought it was I was very satisfied good. with it. Yeah, and I was too. And Drew, you felt the same way. You enjoyed that. Loved it. Okay, so we used that as a starting point. We, we took calls from people about television shows that they would like to see rebooted. And they, there were all sorts of, you know, great choices. I mean, some not practical because the actors involved in them have passed away or things like that. But, but a lot of good, solid choices. Then, then there are TV shows. That you say, why would you think about rebooting it? I mean, for example, Gilligan's Island. I mean, you know, does the world need another Gilligan's Island? And I think the answer for most of us would be... I think I'd make a great Gilligan. You would make a great Gilligan. Sure. Sign me up. Dude, you kind of look like Gilligan in a way. You have to lose the beard. But okay, all right, okay, all right. With, with the exception of you who's looking for a casting job as Gilligan, I, I think most people would say Gilligan's Island could co- probably go by the wayside. <laughs> the, the show they are considering rebooting, though, that if there was a show that, at least in my opinion, you know, probably deserved to die the death that it died years and years ago and doesn't deserve to be rebooted, that that show would be Hogan's Heroes. Do you remember Hogan's Heroes? Okay, you, you you don't, Drew, you've never heard, you, have you even heard of Hogan's I've, Heroes? I've heard of the name, but I've, I've uh, never seen it. Okay, well, Hogan's Heroes was a very, very popular show at the time. It starred the late Bob Crane, ran from 1965 to 1971 on CBS. It, it was nominated for like 12 Emmy Awards and all that. Hogan's Heroes, what? It just even to describe this right now, it was a situation comedy set in a Nazi prisoner of war camp. Now, I I have never been accused of being politically correct, but but even back then, I, I'm I'm a kid, and I'm thinking 
this there's just something that's uncomfortable about this. And the idea was the the prisoners of war. The, the commandant was incompetent, and the the sergeant Sergeant Schultz, you know, he was incompetent. And you had all these wily prisoners, you know, who would you know play all these pranks and do all these things to help out the Allied war effort. But it was a situation comedy set in a Nazi prisoner of war camp, and there was a lot of stuff that was just flat out cringeworthy. Now, you know, interestingly enough, the the guy that played the commandant, Werner Klimpler, he, he was Jewish. Uh, Sergeant Schultz was played by a guy named John Banner, who was uh, born in Austria. Um, he was an, an Austrian Jew, fled uh, Austria in 1938 when when Hitler annexed Austria, you know, came over to the United States and went on to become an actor. Um, one of the characters, Robert Clary, who played one of the prisoners of war uh, named LeBeau, um, his... Apparently, he had um, a, a number of his family members who were killed in the Holocaust. It just, it was just, it was one of these things where it was cringeworthy from sixty-five to seventy-one, and it just, it's just like, oh, this is the situation comedy set in the prisoner of war camp. I don't think about it. I don't think it's such a good idea. Um, they are thinking hand in the air about rebooting Hogan's Heroes. And the plot would be what they want to do is they want to take the characters and then move it into the present day. So find descendants of the characters from this wacky prisoner of war camp in World War II and, you know, bring them all together in 2019 and send them on some treasure hunt or something like this. I'm reading the story about this and I'm thinking, okay, if there are people actually out there that think that they can sell a TV show, and their idea is, let's reboot Hogan's Heroes, and and let's use the same characters from that were starring, you know, they were either prisoners of war or they were the guards in the concentration camp, and let's bring it with their descendants in 2019 and send them on a treasure hunt. And if you can convince some studio to spend money and buy that, Grew, we are in the wrong business, I got to tell you, because we should be moving to Los Angeles because I don't know what my idea for a situation comedy would be, but I guarantee you it would be better than Let's Reboot Hogan's Heroes in 2019. So Gilligan is still on the table? Well, Gilligan sounds like a lot better idea. I mean, Gilligan, right. I mean, Gilligan sounds like a better idea than Hogan's Heroes. Now, again, I don't know that the world needs another Gilligan's Island, but, you know, who knows? All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, how early is too early for the little darlings to have to get up? Stick around. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Okay, can we say this at the outset? Most of us, we're healthier and we're happier the more sleep we get. All right, let, let's face it. For, for everybody who has to get up really early in the morning to go to work, it tends to be a bummer, right? You, you'd love to sleep in. You get some of these cold mornings and stuff, you know, and dragging your sorry butt out of bed at, I don't know, 5 or 5.30 in the morning when it's dark and having to get ready to go to work. It, it's, it's a bummer. You would much rather be able to sleep in. You'd be happier. I mean, look, I, I don't. I mean, I, I start my job at noon, but that doesn't mean that I'm not up really early in the morning getting ready for it. So I, you know, I, I appreciate 
all, all this. And, you know, but I, the reality is I love it when I'm on vacation or there's a weekend or something and I don't have to get up. All right. That's just the reality. But world being what it is, a lot of times we have to get up unless you go to school in California. California has just passed a new law which says there is science which says that students are healthier and happier when they get to sleep in. Okay, so that's great. So they have now passed a law. The law says that no school can start classes before 8 o'clock in the morning and that for high school, it's 830. So it doesn't matter. Again, it doesn't matter, you know, what the needs of the school district are or how you're going to have to work out buses. The school day cannot start until at least 8 o'clock in the morning. And for high school kids, it's 830. The idea being this is going to allow the kids to sleep in a little bit later. So they're going to get more sleep. They will be healthier. They will be happier. They won't be as groggy. Life will be great. All right, let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, a state law which says school cannot start before 8 o'clock in the morning. High school kids can't start before 8.30. I understand why at least you know kids might like it. The idea being you can get some more sleep. All right, is this something that we need to see carried over, say, to Wisconsin? State law that says school districts... You know, doesn't matter what you think, 8.30 in the morning for high school, 8 o'clock for others, because we want the kids to get sleep. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this an idea whose time has come? And if you were to do something like this, starting school later, would it necessarily result, would it necessarily result in the kids getting more sleep or would this just be a situation where i don't know if you didn't have to be in school till say 8 30 instead of going to bed at 11 might you be inclined to stay up to midnight 414-799-1620 that is the acunet mortgage talk and text line on top of that what does this do for extracurricular activities assuming that you have to get x number of hours in in the day if you start at 8.30 and that means that the school day doesn't end until 3.30 as opposed to like 2.45, what is that going to do to all the extracurricular practices and things like that? And what's it going to do to homework at night? And what's it going to do to mom and dad's dinner schedules? 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Dramatically later mandated school starts, good idea, bad idea, and will it achieve the objective? California is making this a matter of state law. Let's start with Ian in Kenosha. Ian, you're first. Good afternoon. Hello, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? Well, uh, I think um, that kids should start school later because uh, when I I was in high school, well, well, because if they stay up too late, then, then they won't get enough sleep. But but if they start school later, then then they can have enough time to sleep and and not be as cranky 
when I went to, when I was in high school, I woke up around six, and stu- school started around seven seven fifty. Mm-hmm. And and well, before that, they started at seven thirty seven thirty five. They switched it after a couple of years, and I graduated in twenty eighteen. And 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 school ended around three o'clock mm-hmm. and two fifty. And um, those times, school was a long day, and it was I had to wake up early. But I think kids should get the opportunity to sleep in. Well, I get. I mean, well, th- thanks for calling. I guess. See, here, here's my point, and. and isn't this a matter of the parents? And I guess I, I really do believe that it's, it's not kind of a zero-sum game. If, if you are concerned that your kid is getting enough sleep, I mean, maybe isn't that then the parent's role that says, okay, all right, bedtime on a school night is 10.30. And let's say school starts at at 7.30. Okay, so, you know, you want to make sure that the kid gets, you know, seven hours sleep or whatever, Eight hours sleep. Don't don't you adjust it? You say, okay, you don't need to be up till midnight. You don't need to be up till one in the morning, playing on your computer or on your phone or or texting your buddies or whatever. You, you got to go to bed. So here, your your bedtime it, it's ten thirty. If that is a concern, I guess just as a practical matter, my biggest well, I have many concerns about this, but this idea that by starting later in the day, we're going to guarantee that kids get more sleep. I I don't think that that's necessarily going to be the case. I think it just means that the kids are going to stay up, you know, later, um, and. I do have these very, very real concerns about, you know, what does this do to extracurricular activities? I mean, how late, you know, are we going to keep kids in the school day for the football practice and things like that? And, and will it actually accomplish the goals? On top of that, I think, again, to me, this is a matter of local control. It's one of these things that I don't, I don't think you need Madison or I don't think you need, in this case, since it's California, you don't need Sacramento dictating to different school districts, you know, when the appropriate start time is and when the appropriate finish time is. Imagine a situation where, let's say you've got some rural school districts where the high school kids in particular, maybe they work around the family farm or, or whatever, and you need the kids home sooner to help out with stuff on the farm in the spring or in the fall or, or whatever. So you'd rather have the kids get up early because they're probably getting up early anyways, and then get them out of school, get them home so they can do the chores or do things like that. I mean, you know, maybe that's not a factor in downtown L.A., but it might be a factor somewhere else. Why don't we allow local school districts to make that decision? Let's talk to Dan in Cudahy. Hi, Dan. Hey, Jeff. How are you today? Good. What do you think? I just think that uh, I don't know about sleeping in and all that stuff, but all I know is uh, from the, the 60s and 70s when I was in high school, the later I got out of school, the better. Because I don't know about you, but uh, you know I got into more trouble at four o'clock than I did at 8 a.m. So uh, keep the kids in school as late as possible so that they have less free time on their hands for less shenanigans in the afternoon. Uh, I got well, think. See, I got to think that through because I mean. I, I don't know. That I think, it, it, I mean, my experience was I didn't see a lot of kids getting, you know, in, in trouble at, at at 4 o'clock or 4.30. You'd, you'd get in trouble at 12.30 at night or things like that. I mean, I guess I, I just think as, as a practical matter, and I'm trying to figure this out like with families. So let's say you have the kids that are involved in the extracurricular activities. And let's say you don't start until 8.30 at the earliest. So that means, 
if school isn't over till 3.15, you know, 3.30, in that range, then you've got football practice or basketball practice or band practice or whatever, and next thing you know, you're, you're pushing 6 o'clock before 5.45 or 6 o'clock, which is after what I think a lot of families end up eating. you got to go pick up the kids. Um, you get the kids home. You have dinner. Then it's seven or seven thirty, and if you've got some homework to do, I, I just I, I just think it's better to get your day started, you know, sooner. Now I understand you can push this to extremes, and I, I don't know that you know I'm not this guy advocating. Oh, let's start at six fifty in the morning, or let's start at seven. There seems to me that there has to be some sort of reasonable stuff. But in California now, as a matter of state law, no school starts before eight, and teenagers. High school kids don't have to start till 8.30. To me, that's actually even a little bit weirder. You would think that if you were going to start school later, you would do it for the younger kids. But, no, it, it's the teenagers that they say we, we want to get them an opportunity to sleep in more. It'll be fine in theory. My guess is it doesn't work out that way in the real world. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This is interesting, not so much because of it happened, but but how it happened. Uh, breaking news, the House of Representatives, Congress, recently, uh, today, just passed a, a condemnation of President Trump's decision to withdraw American forces from just inside Syria's border. And this is, of course, something we've been talking about for a week or two. I, I know some of you who are just ardent supporters of President Trump who don't believe he can do anything wrong get mad at me when I talk about this, but I, I, I join the growing chorus of Republicans who think that this was just an incredibly short-sighted policy move. Um, I, I think it's going to have long-term bad ramifications for the United States, which isn't to say that I'm one of these guys that think that America needs to be involved in never-ending wars, and I appreciate the need to bring troops home. But you, you have to have some sort of plan, and it seems to me we, we had no plan. The decision to withdraw American troops from this particular area has invited Turkey to engage in genocide of the Kurds, the Kurdish people who are you know, really the, the tip of the spear for us for the last several years in fighting ISIS. The Kurds were the ones that were responsible for managing the prison camps where the ISIS fighters were. Now they're abandoning, they're fleeing the area in the face of Turkey aggression, which means the ISIS prisoners are being turned loose and they're back out on the, uh, they're, they're, they're back out to do whatever they're going to do. You've got Russia that is moving into that area to kind of fill the void. And we send a message to U.S. allies in that region that our word is meaningless. All, all that in order to bring a hand, relative handful of troops back. Well, again, I'm not saying that it was a bad idea, but there, there's a way that you go about this. And the responsible way to go about it would have been to sit down with the president of Turkey and to sit down with the Kurdish, lead, Kurdish leaders and you know work out some sort of arrangement that would have guaranteed that when the U.S. pulls back its troops, there's not going to be an immediate military incursion. And, of course, as we talked about yesterday, the U.S. has limited options right now because you know, we, we consider Turkey to be an ally. Turkey is a huge presence in that part of the world. And by the way, we have 50 nuclear weapons stored in Turkey. So, all right, we, you know, what, what, what is going to happen? We, we're not going to give those to the Turkish government. So it's, as I said yesterday, if it's not a mess, it'll do till a real mess gets here. In any event, today, the Congress, House of Representatives, passed a resolution 
opposing President Trump's decision to, you know, pull out of Syria and leave the Kurds on on their own. Um, now, what's interesting now, this is it's again, it's largely symbolic because the decision was President Trump was President Trump. It um, describes the withdrawal as beneficials to adversaries of the United States government, including Russia, Syria and Iran. And the resolution also calls on the president of Turkey to immediately end unilateral military action in northern Syria. So it, it, it criticizes President Trump, and in my opinion, fairly for this particular decision. Here's what the interesting aspect of this is. This resolution had overwhelming bipartisan support. The measure passed 354 to 60. What that means is... Two-thirds of the Republicans in Congress, two-thirds, voted for this resolution, as did all the Democrats. So it tells you that, you know, President Trump has done something that, in, in this particular aspect of foreign policy, he's done something that I would have told you I thought would have been impossible. He has united Republicans and Democrats. In this case, he's united them against this sudden withdrawal. And as I said yesterday, I, I think... I think this is going to turn out to be a huge, huge mistake moving forward for foreign policy. Is this going to be something that moves the needle one way or the other in the elections? I I, I tend to doubt that because people vote their pocketbooks. People vote domestic issues. I'm not sure that people are going to vote or not vote for somebody because the U.S. pulled some troops out of Syria. But big picture foreign policy, a lot of times you have to wait years to see whether a policy move was good or was bad. This particular case, I think we knew within three days that this was bad, and two-thirds of the Republicans in the House of Representatives agree. I do not know where the Republicans in our, in Congress, the Wisconsin Republicans, were. Try to find that out quick, but I'm not sure I'm going to be able to. But I don't don't know where Gallagher was, don't know where Grothman was on this, don't know where Jim Sensenbrenner was on this. But uh, only 60, only 60 Republicans voted against this.